1: Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're focusing on the world of fresh water. With weird weather all around us these days, water stress is causing increasing concern and conflict over that vital resource. Mountain snowpacks that serve as free and predictable water storage are gradually declining around the world from the Himalayas to the Sierras. Water levels are fluctuating so much in the Great Lakes, the world's largest freshwater system, that Midwest states are considering ambitious engineering projects to even out the flows. And, of course, in California, the Bay Delta at the core of the state's freshwater system is badly broken, and factions are fighting over how to fix it. For the next hour, we'll discuss the management of water for people, business, and ecosystems with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Joining us, we're delighted to welcome three water experts. Laurent Auguste is CEO of Veolia Water Americas, Jonas Minton is Water Policy Advisor at the Planning and Conservation League, and Jason Morrison is Program Director at the Pacific Institute. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, Gentlemen, thank you all for coming. Uh, Laurent, let's begin with you. Uh, In 2010, the United Nations declared a human right to water. Is water a human right?
0: Water is essential to life, uh, so having access to water is obviously uh, something that people got to have. Um, however, the challenge is that uh, you need to get, for instance, pipes to get to, to people. Um, so you need to have the good management both of the water resource and the infrastructure. Uh, to make sure that people can actually get access both to drinking water in a reliable manner or to wastewater, which is a big challenge as well. So I think that uh, whether that's a right or that's a necessity, we all need public and private sector to uh, do the right thing to make sure that a maximum of people can get access to, uh, to reliable water.
1: Uh, Jason Morrison, how are the, the water needs or rights of people balanced with the water needs of ecosystems and other things in nature?
2: Well, currently, I would say there are uh, many parts of the world where both the aquatic systems and a large percentage of population aren't getting their needs met. And I agree with uh, uh, Laurent that uh, the challenge ahead of us is about defining what those needs are and then more efficiently working collectively to address them. We've we've been able to now finally accept uh, the principle that the right is there, and now we need to actually... Uh, figure out how to uh, fulfill it. And there's going to be steps for and roles for all different segments of society in doing that.
1: Jonas Minton, the state of California puts the water needs of people and ecosystems on an equal footing. Is that working? Is that unique around the
3: world to have that kind of humans in nature with equal rights with respect to water? Well, let's examine the premise about how we're doing on water for people in California. We think the human right to water, and you can think of Africa and parts of Asia and other uh, areas of the globe, and you say, oh, my gosh, I understand that they don't have uh, potable water. It's little known that here in California, the water supplies to over one million Californians do not meet all the public health standards. That's today. Over one million, uh, their water is uh, contaminated by natural and man-made contaminants, uh, nitrate in the Central Valley of California, the Salinas Valley, and other areas. So when we say yes, we're looking out for people, that has not gotten the attention it needs to. And even when we're looking at some of the proposals that are now before uh, the legislature and maybe before the voters for billions of dollars, we see that there's scant attention given to those needs.
1: We'll come back to California uh, more uh, in depth later, uh, but let's talk you know a little bit globally, and then we'll come back to, to California. Um, where are the in the world are the greatest water stresses that we see? Obviously, Africa is one place. Laurent Agouz, you work for a global water company, uh, and I'm thinking obviously climate-driven. Where is where is climate? Uh, perhaps going to increase water stress most around the world?
0: Well, w- when you talk about uh, water stress or, or crisis as far as water is concerned, actually it's pretty diverse. And the thing that is unfortunately common in many places is that water is poorly managed more often than not. Uh, here in the U.S., for instance, uh, you might have seen a, a recent study from the uh, um, AWWA that's talking about $1 trillion as being the funding gap uh, in terms of uh, Uh, just maintaining the water distribution pipe as it should be for the next 25 years. So you can say that's that's a challenge. Uh, In other places, this is really the water resource itself. And one challenge with water resource is very often that it is managed in isolation, Uh, you know, according to the political boundaries, when actually uh, this has nothing to do with the watershed, the natural boundaries. And in many cases, nobody is really in charge of managing this resource. And, and that's what leads in many um, many locations to the, the fact that you don't have a, a proper and a sustainable uh, water management.
1: Well, how about uh, the Himalayas? often talked about the water towers of Asia that uh, provides drinking water for, what, five major rivers and about a billion people. How big a deal is that, the, the melting snowpack in the Himalayas that, that feed the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, et cetera?
0: So this this is potentially um, a a big challenge, uh, obviously, given the the population that is there. Uh, But I like often to look at countries like, take Israel. Israel is lacking, uh, obviously, of uh, water naturally. But Israel today recycles about 70% of their water, when the global average is 5%. So that gives you an idea that if you are smarter in terms of water management, there's a long way where you can go. At the same time, Israel used this challenge as an economical opportunity to develop a water industry and to become maybe what they call a hub as far as the the water industry is concerned. So, again, the challenge is really about good water management, which is impacting, uh, if it's not on the environment, people, but also the economy. We did a a research uh, last year with um, the International Food Policy Research Institute That shows that today there's about 22% of the world economy that is produced out of water scarce areas. If we go on the way we do, in less than 40 years, this will be 45% of the world economy that will be limited in its ability to grow because of water stress. You could reduce that uh, with a better water management. Jason Morrison,
1: some corporations are taking this into account in terms of where they site their factories, facilities, and they're starting to wake up to water scarcity as a risk to business continuity. Tell us some examples.
2: Absolutely. And I'll I'll use the uh, glacial melt in the Himalayas as an example. Um, So the Chinese government itself has estimated that by 2050, the the glaciers in the Himalayas will be fully melted. And that supplies, as you said, the the five big rivers uh, in South Asia, including the Yangtze and the Yellow. Um, Why is that important? Well, Uh, It's important because for some of those rivers, up to 60 percent of the summer flow is made up today of glacial melt. So there's big question marks around what's going to be the water source in those months in 20 years or 30 years. And if I was a a company that was uh, needed to make capital investments that are, uh, let's say, uh, for an Intel where a a chip-making facility uh, is tens of billions of dollars, and, and the expected uh, life of such an a investment is on the decade horizon, two decades, maybe more. And so uh, the due diligence process for site selection for, in that industry will we'll look at this long-term gap between supply and demand and have real concerns. And whereas 15 years ago water was maybe one of many criteria that were uh, evaluated for site selection, uh today it's a, a much higher one. And uh I, I was just on a panel with a representative from Intel who said that there's at least one part of the world they've decided uh not to invest primarily because of water concerns. Some governments are uh are taking a leadership role or realizing this long term trajectory, um but there are many others that have yet to understand this new shift and um uh and, and, and it's problematic, not just for global companies that invest in these countries but for domestic business. So there was a recent survey of uh, the Indian Chambers of Commerce, so basically their trade association, and their 900 biggest companies uh, responded to the survey around water. How many of them thought that water was uh, a concern uh, today? Uh, less than 60%. How many thought water would be uh, an issue for their company 10 years from now? And 90% said that was the fact. So when we talk about technological innovation what companies can do to get more efficient, that, that certainly will happen, and that's an important part of the equation. But if you're a company that's located in a place where water resources aren't managed uh, sustainably and where the take on the water resources exceeds the renewable supply, which is the current state of the way uh, uh, groundwaters are managed in, in India, that's going to be very hard for companies to be successful 10 years out. And they realize that uh, addressing that risk they can't do through efficiency measures alone. They need to work uh, with other businesses and other stakeholders to try to figure out how water resources ma- can be managed more sustainably.
1: And In the past, they often just think about their pipe or their factory fence, and they have to start looking at whole watersheds, right, which is very different than the way they've been looking at that in the past. Either Laurent or, or Jonas, want to jump in on that?
0: Yeah, I, I would agree, and, you know, I would add one dimension. I mean, we talk about businesses. Let's talk also about cities because, you know, 50% of uh, the, the world population now is gathered in large cities, and that would be 70% in a, in a few decades. And I think we see a growing competition among cities. And, and so cities, I think, start to understand that they need to manage properly their infrastructure, but also uh, to appear as being reliable in terms of the water supply if they want to attract investment, uh, but also people. And I'd like to take two examples uh, recently here in the, in the U.S. One is Chicago. Uh, Everybody knows, I think, Rahm Emanuel, a pretty bold mayor. And and I think Rahm Emanuel have just taken the challenge of water. He said, you know, we will increase rates because our pipes are old, and we need to replace them. And by the way, that will enable us to create jobs. And so when you you communicate, you explain, basically people understand. New York City. New York is obviously one of the greatest places in terms of, uh, I mean, the cities have got something complex, They, they, they do some great things. But they've decided that they really wanted to be on top of of the world in terms of efficiency and that they would save money. They would be more efficient in terms of the way they manage their water system. So we came with them to a a creative partnership by which they expect to save 100 to 200 million a year out of a 1 billion budget uh, by getting some of the best practices from around the world. And, And they are definitely on the way to do that, which will enable them to reduce potential rate increases, but also to reinvest on the thing that will ensure the sustainability. So I think that there's a positive twist that's coming for cities to understand that for their competitiveness as well, they need to be good water managers in the future.
1: And underlying all this is the different role of corporations in both as water users, they're looking at water resources differently, and also corporations as stakeholders in international water uh, negotiations and process, right, because they realize that there's opportunity and risk in water.
3: But Before jumping into that, let me follow up a little bit on, on how we look at water now. I've been doing this for about 40-some years, and when I started and we worked on the California State Water Plan, well, what did you do? Population is going to increase, more businesses, you build a new dam, and you, or you drill a new well, or you do both. And what do we do in California? Well, we built over 1,200 dams. We have hundreds of thousands of wells to the extent that now we are overdrafting our groundwater, and it's becoming recognized. So what's new that we're hearing from, from both of my fellow panelists? We're not talking about water development, not in California as much. We've got a few people holding on to those ideas that we can build our way out of these problems. Um, And in the rest of the world, it's water management. How do we more properly use the water that we have? Uh, In California, we can go to major cities like uh, Los Angeles and the Bay Area and so forth. What are they talking about? They're talking about water recycling. They're talking about local stormwater capture so that it doesn't just uh, take uh, contaminants out to the ocean from our streets and whatnot. Um, These are the sorts of new approaches Again, there's some people who are still thinking we're, gonna, we're going to do the old um, uh, build more, you know, build it, damn it, out of it. But I think that my colleagues are, are seeing the same thing I'm seeing. That is the past, uh, not the future.
1: Can I Jonas Minton is a water policy advisor at the Planning and Conservation League. Our other guests today at Climate One are Jason Morrison, program director at the Pacific Institute, and Laurent Auguste, CEO of Veolia Water Americas.
2: Jason? If I could add to that I- – Fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, for many companies, water was considered a factor of production. Uh and when and, 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 and very little else in terms of the risk associated with not having it. It was thought of as uh you know the pipe that gets delivered to my manufacturing facility. But for many companies that the, the water related risk exposure may be embedded in their supply chain. Uh it may be uh for uh beverage and food companies and for apparel industry, it's in the ag based supply chain. And, um, and, and so this recognition of this expanded concept of risk, and, and what many companies are doing, by the way, are these um, uh, hot spotting exercises where they're, uh, they're, they're locating their facilities, maybe their tier one suppliers around the world, and they're mapping that against parts of the world where heightened water scar- scarcity is becoming an issue. And they show up on a map in red, right? Well there's a question ahead of us about what is the correct response for those companies uh, you know so I, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague from levi's about well maybe we just won't be sourcing cotton from pakistan and and that and that raises some really interesting questions about what is the right response to that uh, is it not perhaps because of all the jobs and uh, issues uh, uh, in that country Uh, that would go away if you start sourcing from another part of the world. Maybe those red spots on the map are where you invest and prioritize action to address the problem. And I think right now the ministries, let's use the example of Pakistan, if the ministries are not quite getting that that they have a long-term viability problem in terms of the ag industry in that country, but when major apparel companies sit down together, perhaps with civil society groups, and say, we need to address the water challenge here because otherwise we're going to buy our cotton elsewhere. That's a new voice that has not been at the table historically. And and whereas the water ministries in many of these governments are pretty low on the pecking order, now you're talking about the finance ministries, the trade ministries, the energy ministries, where all the power really lies in many of these countries. And that conversation is just beginning in parts of the world, and I think it's only going to continue going forward. Laurent Gouz, let's talk
1: about Singapore as an example that took a water threat and made it an opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Singapore is having a lot of – most of its supply, actually, of of water coming from Malaysia. And they had a long-term agreement that was about to come back to to renewal, and they thought that that was a threat uh, to their security. And so Singapore embarked into a number of initiatives – to, um, to be more independent as far as water is concerned. A lot of reuse, a lot of, um, I mean, uh, recovery of rainwater. So there's a lot of rain in Singapore. Uh, desalination as well and more efficiency, which led Singapore to be more independent as far as its resources is concerned. But they push it one step further, which is actually to turn that, again, as an advantage in terms of uh, developing a water industry, but also turning the, the wastewater into reuse water that they call new water, which is a pretty nice term, and into uh, something that helped them actually to attract, attract investment because they treat the wastewater to a very high level of purity, which is needed for the electronic industry. So that led them to get more investment from the electronic industry in Singapore. So I think again, I want to be very op- optimistic about the topic that there's a lot of things that can be done. But I see really three main challenges as far as the water sector is concerned. It's a tricky sector because it's local. There are three challenges. One is the lack of transparency and awareness. The second is isolation. I was talking about uh, the management uh, of water at uh, the, the political boundary level, but also the fact that water managers, whether they are in companies or in cities, are very often on their own. And the third element is that, Um, The the innovation has been slow in the water sector because you've got a difficult uh, balance to strike between reliability, which is a must, and innovation. So what you need to do going forward, what I like to call connecting the drops. I'm a water guy, so I'm sorry. Um, and, and, And you need to connect the drops between people and facts, data. You need to connect the drops between and um, uh, water managers and best practices, and you need to connect the drops between reliability and innovation. And that's one of our focus as a company, as Veolia.
3: And
1: one innovation in countries like Australia and others is dynamic pricing. Water is often very regulated, static pricing, but in Australia, you tell us other places where water starts to reflect scarcity, just like it does with wheat, corn, and other commodities.
0: Yeah, there's the very well-known case of um, the Murray-Darling um, Basin where they came to a pretty uh, dynamic um, uh, way of managing, basically, the water resource. Um, just a statistic. I think in California, uh, if you look at GDP per drop, the GDP per drop in California is roughly of about $130 per um, uh, thousand gallon. Israel, this will be about 400 dollars per um, thousand gallon. So you see that there's a big gap.
1: Well, there's a big agricultural difference between those two,
0: right? A lot of that's going to be in agriculture. Well, there's a lot of agriculture in Israel as well.
1: Okay.
0: okay. Uh, they, they export actually arranges and so on and so on. So what they've done in, in Australia is to have a dynamic system where people can buy and trade actually um, um, rights to access to water so that you maximize also the, the GDP per drop. And so you, you really support uh, the um, the local industry and activity in a very dynamic manner. So this can be one of uh, the creative way that we need to see developing further around the world uh, to challenge the, the, stati- the, the, the stat, um, uh, status quo and, and basically the historical situation um, and to come with something that reflects more the current challenges and, and needs.
1: Jonas, is this a good idea, the idea of water as a commodity
3: that's traded and profited from? Um, One wants to encourage innovation. You want to encourage economic efficiency. However, you have to ensure that those public trust values are maintained. So things like our environment. Just to the east of here is the Bay Delta. Does anybody know what a Bay Delta is? Sort of. You sort of know what that is. Um, It is actually the largest estuary on the west coast of the Americas as it turns out more than half of the water that should flow into and out of the delta no longer does so it is diverted for other uses and so when we talk about privatization uh, either directly that a company is owning that or it's going to folks who have significant financial interests in those transactions and are making money on the water not just on the prof- on the uh products generated by the water it raises some significant questions as to uh, transparency, public access, and whether the highest uses are being made of that water. At the same time, economics are important. I'll give you one example of innovation in California. To the west of Fresno, in the Central Valley, it's pretty dry, pretty hot. 100 years ago, native vegetation, pretty sparse in that kind of arid area. Water was imported to the area largely from that same Bay Delta estuary and used to irrigate around a million acres of crops. What we also found out, not only did that hurt the Bay Delta estuary, but also the irrigation of that land, and now this is where water, you have to connect all the drops, irrigation of that land led to pollution. Naturally occurring elements in that soil, like selenium, Mm -hmm. leach out, and return to waterways, including the Bay Delta estuary, uh, a source of water for some of the people right here in the Bay Area, as well as in Southern California. So what are people doing about it? Well, there are some people who say, well, the answer is, we need to build another diversion from the delta. I'm not making this up. They think that a conservation solution, in fact, in, in one big effort, it's called the first conservation effort, is to divert more water from that estuary in order to save the estuary. Um, on the other hand, people in the private sector are going, hey, I'm not sure that's going to work. And so we're seeing some pretty creative uh, ideas coming forth. You have land that is really not suitable for irrigation, but what is it good for? Drive down Interstate 5 in California, it is hot and it is sunny. Solar a great opportunity for large-scale solar. It doesn't have desert tortoises, doesn't have um, uh, some of those other species that we are rightfully concerned about in our desert areas. This area has been pretty worked over. And you could have thousands, tens of thousands of megawatts of carbon-free energy that assists with all of our other climate change issues. We don't, we shouldn't forget that we need to adapt to climate change but the things that we can do that also help us reduce those causes of climate change, if we can do two for one, we're better off. Jason Morrison, yeah. let's get you on the Delta.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I, I'd like to start a little bit further back in the conversation, which is when you when you ask about markets, water markets and um, innovation in Australia, because we have some of that innovation here in California as well. And I, I think one way to think of it is – Water resources are a variable resource in that there's the natural variation of supply historically we've built uh, infrastructure to be able to smooth out that variation and that does well. We can carry on the Colorado River four times the annual flow of the river in the storage infrastructure. Um, as we look forward there's more tools uh, are going to be necessary to uh, uh, to provide that buffer against variability so Conjunctive use programs, for example, where in the wet months they they pump water into aquifers so they can pump them in the dry months, is one such option. Water marketing is another. Forbearance agreements is this idea that uh, the cities in drought years can pay farmers for their water rights uh, in order uh, to be able to provide the water for the cities, and meanwhile the farmers uh, follow the land for those years. What that allows in terms of the flexibility of the system is it allows – The cities to assure supply, it's not a tenable situation to think, well, if there's a four-year drought, we're just out of luck. I mean, how many companies are going to invest in a city if that's what they say? Assurance of supply is key. So if you can provide that assurance without building another dam in the Sierras to hold water, but through a market instrument that allows you to avail yourself of that water in drought years on a temporary basis – that's just clever water management, and I think you're going to see more of that not just in California but elsewhere.
1: And on the Bay Delta solution, you know, is there what's the ultimate solution for the Bay Delta? Is it more engineering, more diversion, or something else? I,
2: uh, uh, it's a very complex issue. Uh, it's hard to give a, 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 a very simple answer. There's uh, almost certainly an infrastructure fix uh, coupled with uh, uh, more uh, changes in the way the water resources are managed to move water from the north to the southern part of the state.
1: Laurent, is this something you're happy to stay out of or you want to be part of?
0: No, I am uh, Well, <laughs> I'm, I would be happy to, to, to get into it, but uh, I'm not a specialist of um, the, the Bay Area. Let, let, let me um, maybe jump into a, a connected topic. Instead of talking about um, drinking water, let's talk about wastewater.
1: Good. Yeah, well, uh, because,
0: uh, uh, you know, water that we take, I mean, we give it back usually. And, and uh, we talk about uh, the supply of drinking water as a challenge. Actually, we should see also in the future the wastewater as a resource. Um, uh, let me take maybe uh, two examples. One in, in Brussels, we have started to turn municipal wastewater into bioplastics. You can recover materials that are in the wastewater to create bioplastics.
1: Do you separate the plastics and then use the water for something? No, else? You,
0: you you basically you treat the water out of. I mean, this is bacteria that that basically eat the pollution, and there's element in the bacteria that you can extract to create bioplastics. We've got wastewater treatment plants now that are independent in terms of energy production. So, using also the material that are there, you, you manage at least to be energy neutral or potentially even to create energy. Um, there's a project where, where we work. Uh, I mean. We talk often about uh, energy and water, you know, the energy-water nexus, and, and all the challenges associated to, um, to uh, produce water in the oil and gas industry. There's a, a project we work um, in uh, with a company named uh, um, PXP, where actually we help them to treat the produce water, and thanks to this water that is now well-treated, thanks to the, the right technology, to actually put water back into a local stream that was lacking of water. So, again, there's different ways also and positive way, to look at water and wastewater as a resource, as a solution uh, to support um, economic activity and communities.
1: Uh, your company, Veolia, is pursuing a contract, I believe, of $90 million in nevado uh, north of San Francisco, to, to do a project there. It's controversial. So what's the case for why a company like yours should do that rather than city government? It's,
0: um, I mean, it's pretty, uh, pretty simple. We've got about 100,000 water professionals around the world. That works from, again, cities like New York, as I was mentioning, or small places in Bangladesh, or in India, or in Europe. And I was mentioning earlier about the challenge of, of um, isolation in, in the water sector. We are able to connect the drops, connect p- people to, um, to, to bring the best practices so that everywhere they can come with the best efficiencies. In Novato, for instance, we have the city to save about $7 million, and at the same time to improve their performance. So there's a misperception about the private sector involvement in the water sector because people think it's privatization and the private sector will put their hand into the water resource. I'm definitely not uh, somebody supporting that. What we do as professional water operators is to bring everywhere some of the best practices so that again uh, you can be more efficient but also that you can bring innovation faster in your operation
1: but do prices go up when for-profit entities get involved
0: we save money i was mentioning new york for instance earlier we will help new york to save 100 to 200 million a year so that's that's what we do as a business and that's pledged or actually realized that's promised savings or that's realized savings we started uh, we started just a few months ago and this will be realized saving it's a very good point. You know, you've got often people that would be consultant advisors that would tell you, well, you should do that, and here's the big report. We've been running water uh, And Then services. they walk away after they, they, get, they get paid for the Absolutely. report. Yeah. What, what, what we've been doing uh, for almost 160 years, since 1853, is to war, run water uh, in, in, uh, in many different locations. We supply water to 170 million people every day. So our job is actual implementation, real implementation. So in New York, uh, the idea is really, yes, to help them to make it happen. And the, the, the contract we've got there is that we get rewarded when this happens. So this is not a report, it's real results.
1: Laurent Augustus, CEO of Viglia Water America, is our other guest today at Climate One, J- J- Jonas Minton, Water Policy Advisor at the Planning and Conservation League, and Jason Morrison, program director at the Pacific Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. One more question for uh, Laurent, and then we'll go to, to uh, Jason. Locally uh, in Richmond, uh, Veolia had a, also has operates a a wastewater plant. and In December, the company agreed to $150,000 civil penalty for violating some of the discharge uh, laws there, and there's, there's a consent decree. So tell us about that case, what happened there.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you can't get it out of context. Uh, what's happening in Richmond is that um, uh, we help in the city, actually, to, uh, to improve, for instance, their, their um, uh, d- uh, rainwater collection. And, uh, and we're getting award- awarded, actually, additional work. Uh, so uh, the challenge between operation and infrastructure is always there. You need to find the right balance, and that's what we're trying to do uh, with Richmond. Uh, not far from here, for instance, in uh, the city of Burlingame, we are coming this year to our 40 years anniversary of working with the city on uh, what we call a public-private partnership. And so this model of having the private sector and the public sector working together is usually very successful. Jason Morrison. The Pacific Institute's
2: done some work uh, in this area of uh, privatization of water service delivery, and um, now this report's uh, entitled uh, Beyond Privatizations," about six years old. Um, one of the things that's worth mentioning is there's very little research or data to suggest that private water service providers or public water service providers are inherently more efficient. Uh, this report spent a lot of time trying to identify what were the factors for underperforming utilities and uh, and how can they be improved. And, and if you look at the track record, there are just as many public agencies that do these elements uh, uh, poorly and uh, some private companies that do them poorly, too. So it's not a clear picture. but when it comes to uh, uh uh underinvestment or uh performance measurement and reward or or uh or discipline when when there's underperformance transparency and and community involvement in 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 decision making these are all the types of factors that determine what's good water management or not and um, and so if if it's to some degree to, the, to which we can get beyond a simple equation of private entities versus public entities and really look at what does good water resource management look like and 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 drive performance there we go a long ways and and the last point i'd make is it's not a black and white line between privatization so if a, a municipality uh outsources its payroll is that privatization if if it buys pumps and pipes from a, a private company is that or if it commissions a company to build an aqueduct i mean you know all those are are, are, are shades of the privatization spectrum, where I think historically we've had problem is when you go toward privatization that uh, and, and there's I believe some mistakes uh, in the past of, of actual ownership of water resources by the private entity. I think for many of us that was a hugely problematic uh, end of the spectrum. And I, but I don't think that's really where things are now, and where they probably will never be again. There. The other thing that I think we've done uh, to move things forward is getting a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the contracts, um, the issues around pricing, the issues around maintenance and operation of the facilities and reinvestment for the infrastructure so that at the end of a 20-year contract you don't have a dilapidated system and then it's, okay, well, we've done our job. And I think the the, the contracts in that regard are getting um, more detailed and they're addressing some of those challenges at the outset. Uh, which uh, I think is better for everyone.
1: One of the critiques of corporations is they have short time horizons. They're looking for quarterly profits. But here in the city of San Francisco, we found that politicians were operating the water system the same way. They were only in office for a little while. They were sort of sucking money out that should have gone to water infrastructure savings and using it for pet projects. And then, oh, down the road, the uh, citizens of San Francisco get hit with a big bond bill because we have to refund all of this money that should, was used for other purposes by short-sighted politicians.
3: Uh, let, me, let me observe uh, that happened. Uh, <laughs> but when things like that happen in a municipal uh, water entity, like the sea in County of San Francisco, um, you can throw the bums out. If you have... In in California – But by the time we realize it, the bums are already gone. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, but there have been New significant months. instances where cities and counties have had to respond because the public went to the city council. On the other hand, we are working with a, an investor-owned utility, a private water company in California, and uh, on things that involve their rates and governance and the, really the future of that region. It's the Monterey area and whether they're going to have water or lose about two-thirds of their water supply. Where those decisions are really made, the governance decisions, is not in Monterey. It's on Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco at the State Public Utilities Commission. And for us to participate, not only did we have to go to San Francisco regularly, but just to get in the game, to file the legal papers, to be able to speak... We had to buy special software that costs $500. We're a nonprofit organization. What about a resident who says, wait a minute, I see on my street there have been six leaks and somebody isn't taking care of it. For them to go to the State Public Utilities Commission and appear before an administrative law judge uh, probably requiring an attorney to represent them is just not tenable. So how you deal with these governance issues – uh, is very important. Laurent?
0: Yeah, if I can um, add a few things. Uh, again, on privatization. So the concept of a private company owning the, the water asset. First, this is something that is pretty rare in the world. Um, there's basically three countries where you find it. You find it in the UK, uh, and that came after the, the Thatcher days where it has been decided really to, to privatize um, and sell the asset. This, uh, this happened in, in Chile, that has followed basically the U.K. model. And this happens here in the U.S. for historical reasons, where people first, I mean, put the first pipe in the ground and then got a, on a ship of, of, of the system. So this is something that is pretty unique uh, in, in the world, not not, not really uh, the, the, main, uh, the mainstream.
1: But controlling uh, access and control, controlling the asset might be a fine line. If you control access, then you control – if you control delivery – in effect, don't you really control But that? But
0: you don't really, I mean, a company like, like ours, for instance, we don't control delivery. I mean, the, the, when we work for a city, even if we run the day-to-day operation, we've got a contract for a given term. Um, the, the leadership in terms of setting the rates, setting um, the, the specification stays with the mayor. What we do is that we are the professional operator that enables basically to, to, to run it in the most efficient way possible. Uh, thanks again to the, the broad team we've got. So that's what we do. And, and also something to, to have in mind in terms of the business model of a company such as Veolia is that it's a long-term-based business model. We used to have 10 years, 20 years in China in Sh- with Shanghai, for instance, 50-year contract. So w- you're not in a business where you make a lot of money in the short term. You're in a business where you can make little money for the long term, provided that you do a great job every day. If not, you're out of business. So, um, so again, I think there's maybe some bad experiences here and there, but there's a misconception about what the private sector uh, involvement in, in the water services can be and, and what Jonathan, the other value that is Just Jonathan,
1: Jonathan, are you saying that the oversight and governance is better with public or it's a mess in either case? I wasn't quite sure. I it mean, it's complicated.
3: It, it's complicated in either case when you talk about – uh, individual water districts. In California, we're fighting over some big issues about allocation of water, again from the Bay Delta estuary. Mm-hmm. That is not a question for my friends in the private sector. That's a question for the legislature, for various regulatory bodies. One thing that we've learned, groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Bay Institute here, have done the scientific studies that, for which there is now overwhelming scientific consensus. That the Bay Delta estuary needs to get some of that water back. So the question will be, how can we work with uh, entities such as those uh, in the private sector in Southern California, in the Silicon Valley, here in the Bay Area, so that that water can be replaced? Water recycling, stormwater capture, cleaning up our degraded groundwaters so that they can be reused. That's the future. And so how we work with the private sector, most of the, most of the work, Most of the construction will be done by people in the private sector.
1: Jonas Minton is uh, Water Policy Advisor at the Planning and Conservation League. Lauren Auguste is CEO of Vigilio Water Americas. And Jason Morrison is Program Director at the Pacific Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to put a microphone up here and invite your participation. Uh invite you to come participate with one one one-part question. Uh, and if you're on this side of the house, I appreciate you going around through uh, through that door rather than crossing this uh, this camera line. And our producer, Jane and Chen, is right there. And that's where the line uh, will start. And we encourage your uh, participation. It's often um, often a lively part. And until then, we get situated. I'm going to continue with one other question. Um, about 70% of water use worldwide is is used for farming. We haven't talked about farming a whole lot yet. Let's talk about that aspect. It's big here in California, it's big everywhere. Laurent Auguste, goose, you know, you talk about new water, reused water, what can be done to reduce water usage or recapture water from agriculture.
0: So, I mean, agriculture, uh, irrigation, for instance, obviously is the is the big thing. Um there's often room to be probably more efficient in terms of uh, the the irrigation or the system used. Uh, again, if I go to, uh, to Israel, and I'm sure it's done in some places in California as well, techniques like drip irrigation, providing the right amount of water at the right place um, for, for the, the, the crops uh, is the right thing to do. So but
3: farmers don't like it because it costs more, there's, I mean, right? But no, it actually, if I may, they love it now. <laughs> oh. uh, many of them do. Not so much, it didn't be originally for the water savings because they thought they could still bend the rules and take more water from the Bay Delta Estuary. The reason they did it after the experiences in Israel was it made more money for them. They could apply the fertilizer and the pesticides much, much more efficiently, And those are very expensive agricultural inputs. It reduced the runoff that was becoming more and more of a regulatory problem for them. The crops are better. But what percentage
1: of crops in California are irrigated with uh, flood irrigation versus drip?
3: Most of it is still flood irrigation. Um, Some crops, uh, like rice, you you can't do drip on rice. Um, And alfalfa you're not going to do it on. There's some questions about crop choices. Um, But farmers are moving there. Thirty years ago, I got this close to being fired for saying that agriculture could be more efficient. I was a civil servant. Didn't happen. I mean, it didn't happen that I got fired. As it turned out, however, I was right. And since then, farmers in California grow 40% more crop per drop. Now some are saying, oh, they've maxed out. Well, I gotta tell you, farmers are amongst the most innovative people in the world. And as we sit here, somebody's figuring out how to make it more efficient. So there's a lot more we can do. And so those savings, you know, 5% in the agricultural sector is a big water supply. Yeah. Let's let Laurent finish, and then we'll go to our question. Do you have a,
1: we cut you off. Yep. That's okay. uh, let's have our first audience question. Yes, sir. Thank you all. Excuse me. There it is.
3: Thank you all for both having this cordial discussion with us today and for all coming together on such an otherwise contentious issue. I know that a number of public goods, electricity, other things that we provide have run into major issues with commoditization, oil is of concern now.
2: For water, where do you see the largest upcoming market failures and issues that are likely to balloon or otherwise complicate this already very contentious issue? Is it bottled water? Is it commoditization across watersheds, as you mentioned? Where are the next likely landmines? who would like to take that one.
1: (laughs) I will. Jason?
2: Water is this very... Interesting dynamic uh, a resource in that it has this um, public good element and then this um, uh, commodity dimension as well. Uh, and I think it straddles that in a way that no other resource does. Um, I, I see uh, the use of markets, as I mentioned before, as an instrument to uh, provide more flexibility in the system and perhaps – uh, allow for "quote-unquote" marginal supply to occur in the cheapest way, as opposed to having to build new infrastructure to meet it. Where I see both an upside and a downside uh, going forward is this whole very interesting space around ecosystem services, and uh, and the fact that uh, many of these aquatic systems are providing economic value. Uh, they're mostly water-related uh, ecosystems. Uh, they are uh, uh, getting. Uh, undermined uh, throughout the world, uh, and uh, when we get to a point where they are dysfunctional, uh, there's going to be a huge cost for the economy for this, and we haven't quite um, captured well or figured out how to quantify this benefit, uh, and then there's a lot of um, peril around ownership, uh, especially to the degree to which that ecosystem function is somehow tied to land ownership, and we know that uh, uh, a lot of lands in private hands and there's all sorts of questions about people getting paid to be able to not destroy their land uh, and 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 therefore the the water resources and i, I don't know uh, where uh, this will end. I, I think, actually, the, the notion that we need to better quantify these services a, a, is important. I, I agree with that. I think it needs to be done in a policy space where we're really considerate about what, uh, what the implications are uh, in, a, in a policy space once we've done that.
0: Laurent Guss, if, if I could just add on a, a small aspect of your, your question. You're talking about bottled water and, the, and the, 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 the water supply, I mean, to communities. This is two completely different fields. Bottle water is about marketing, and um, the, the supply to the communities is about public services. And let me give you um, an example. I was um, a story. I was based in Tokyo uh, before coming to the U.S., and I remember one day seeing this big advertisement for one of the famous French bottle water company. And you've got this magnificent, magnificent model with a bottle of water and she throws it away, and the water goes out, and that's the advertisement. And I think about it, say, so, well, I'm really in the, the wrong business. I spend my time being in the trenches with my people, I mean, looking after leaks where they throw the water away. So, and the margins, field.
1: and the profit margins are a lot yeah. higher
0: on that. Absolutely, I'm the wrong business, water. but I love it.
1: Let's have our next audience question.
0: I'd
3: like to congratulate the panel for demonstrating leadership by refraining from Using those green bottles at your feet, that's an inspiration to... We apply. don't allow
1: plastic water
3: bottles here. Yes, but you've conserved. You haven't dipped into the supply. Yes.
1: Yeah.
3: It's wonderful. Uh, I'm, uh, I haven't heard anything mentioned, uh, about, uh, uh, population, uh, which of course is a huge, uh, determinant of how much we're going to use and how much we need. And uh, uh, I haven't heard fracking mentioned either. I'd be curious to hear if you have anything to say about those two. That's
1: those two, we got a long line. Let's try to get to fracking and, and uh, population. Laurent?
0: Well, population, I'll tell you about my son, my older son. Uh, two weeks ago, he had to make a, a NAT project. And we, we, we've produced a site that we call GrowingBlue, uh, GreenBlue.com, and Jason is, uh, is supporting us. Um, where we gather a lot of data about water, because the, the vision was again lack of transparency. You need to make data and best practices basically available to people. So I advised him to look at uh, at two things: the water withdrawal per state in the U.S., but also the dynamic for population growth. And he came to some uh, some calculation then to 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 look at how many years is there left, for instance, for California, in terms of hitting the level of uh, I mean, unsustainable situation, uh, which is more or less 40% of use of, uh, of the, the available water resource. And this calculation shows that you've got 24 years in California if you don't change some of your practices. It was a rough one, but that's an interesting one.
3: And I'm tracking. Jason? Or, or, before or before just, you leave uh, the, the population one, just uh, two bits of information that I find very interesting. Recently, I I think you just pointed out earlier, Laurent, that uh, slightly over half of the world's population now lives in cities. I'm also told that currently half of the world's population lives in countries with declining uh, population replacement even, half. And I think those are probably related, that the asset that children represented in the rural, the agrarian society – changes, frankly, to some extent, to a deficit when families move to a city. So this, this concept that, yeah, it's just going to go on forever, I found that very interesting. So I, I'm not sure I'm one of these people who thinks that, it, you know, we're, we're just going to have more and more and more people forever.
0: Uh, the, the question, I mean, sorry, the, the, the challenge for population is that it's not only about the number of people. We've got 70 billion, uh, 7 billion people on the planet today. That would be nine in a few decades. But we got also one billion of middle-class people, and that would be three in the next few decades. So their diet, the way they basically they consume, and so the need for water in that respect is actually the main challenge mm-hmm. rather than just the number of people.
2: Uh, that was what I was going mm-hmm. to ask the question yeah. as well. It, it, uh, this uh, new emerging middle class from India and China are, have more implications for uh water consumption through their diets and their meat-based diets than the the double digit population growth that you see in Africa. So I think it's not a strict number uh calculation on population. But let me try to actually also use this as the as the opening to the fracking question. Um, one of the interesting uh developments that's coming in the lead up to Rio plus 20, which is this uh twenty-year anniversary of uh of uh the World Summit on the Environment is being pushed by the German government and it's around the nexus between energy and water and, and food. Uh, because ultimately, uh, these things are very intricately, co- in, intricately in, uh, interconnected and they're not managed well in that way. So, uh, an example is energy policy in the U.S. and the, the, the current, uh, uh separation between energy related decisions and the water-related uh, implications. Biofuels is a great example, uh, but uh, fracking, an, another one, where these two come together. And um, uh, the, the push here is to get a more integrated approach to the way that, that companies, uh, countries try to develop policy to tackle these. I will go back to the China example and the melting gl- glaciers where I started. In and of itself, the idea that those glaciers are melting, and over the next 30 years, they would uh, be uh, uh, not providing summer flows in uh, in in those main rivers. That would be, uh, in and of itself, a challenge. But if you look at China's long-term energy forecast, they're planning to increase hydroelectric power by 40 percent over that same period. Think about that. If those are policies that are not speaking to each other, because if you're going to develop dams on rivers that aren't going to have summer flows, there's, there's a problem there. But right now the policy is disconnected, and I think this next 10 years is going to be about much more sophisticated interlinkages between food and energy and water policy.
1: We're talking about water at the Commonwealth Club. That's Jason Morrison, Program Director of the Pacific Institute. Let's have our next audience question.
3: Hello. I wondered if any of you could speak to um – maybe the contribution that desalinization plants are expected to make in the future. And I wondered also if you could speak to the impacts on an already stressed oceanic environment and are there potential issues with disposal of the waste streams associated with that process?
0: So Laurent to desalination. So there's more and more desalination, obviously, uh, in in, uh, the part of the world uh, such as the Middle East or Australia actually developed uh, uh, new plants. Um, There's a lot of progress being made in terms of technology to reduce the quantity of energy needed, but also to treat what we call the brine and, and reduce the potential impact on the environment. So that's a field that is progressing. I think desalination is not the solution, but this might be part of the solution in some part of the world.
1: I think I read about somewhere in the Middle East, solar-powered
2: diesel plants, people taking
1: yeah, a pass a at that. I, I, would, I, Jason, I, I, would, I
0: agree with
2: everything that was just said. I, I, diesel will be a part of the equation. Um, it is most likely going to be more expensive and energy-intensive than other forms of water. And while that might work in coastal areas and municipalities or urban areas, when we talk about the 70 percent of uh, water being used by agriculture, even with efficiency gains, the idea of being able to desalt water in order to to meet our food needs, our fiber needs through agriculture is not realistic, and it will never be the solution in those areas. So it it will have – uh, application and relevance in certain parts of the world, and then in other places, we're going to need to think uh, completely differently about how, particularly in agriculture, we meet our water needs.
3: But but let me add to that. Jonas I mean, um, desal, ocean water desal, is the most energy-intensive source of water, except for walking it and carrying it, as you know, how many, maybe a billion women in the world uh, walk. Three miles a day, carrying 50 miles, 50 pounds of water. Try that someday. But ocean desal. So th- this uh, disconnect between water and energy. Hey, there it is, folks. Uh, w- here's how we're going to get our new water supply to deal with climate change. We're going to do it by the most energy intensive. Now, when when people think about desal, they're only thinking about almost always ocean desal. There's also something called brackish water. And that's groundwater, water under the land that's too salty for use uh, for potable purposes right now. But it's maybe one-tenth or less as salty as ocean water. And desalinating that water is far less energy intensive. There, In California, I just got an estimate, 100 million acre-feet of water. That's, uh, that's 100 times the size of Folsom Reservoir. In the Sacramento area, 25 times the size of the, the largest reservoir, Shasta, uh, it could be as much as that could be available. So again, the innovation, uh, bringing in solar technologies and other things, uh, but large-scale ocean desal in California, the state says maybe that much. And, and again, I
0: mean, let's think about reuse. Water is too precious to be used only one time. Yeah. And so that's something that we need to see more.
1: Let's have our next audience question.
0: In some parts
2: of the world, people have been managing rivers for thousands of years, and the foundation of that management has been a simple assumption, that rivers tomorrow will behave the way rivers have always behaved in the past. And we now know, because of our understanding of climate change, that that assumption is wrong. Uh, changes in timing, changes in amount, uh, changes in how it comes with rain instead of snow. Uh, so if the old assumption for managing our rivers is we now know is wrong, what's the new assumption for managing rivers? Adaptive management. I think um, the, the resilience, and when you look at climate resilience, it's about uh, a diversity and a- adaption. And, and um, let's use California as an example. Uh, uh, we built our infrastructure here in the state based on the concept of uh, snowpack that, that melts and provides the spring runoff that will allow us to irrigate. Well, if 70 percent of that precipitation comes in the form of rain and runs off in the winter months, how will we deal with that? And, and, uh, there, it's, it's not like we can't anticipate the fact that our systems are changing and that we need to open up, uh, our minds and, and our policy toolbox in order to figure out how to, to manage those, uh, the, the, those changes. Uh, some governments are, are ahead. Others are yet to actually, uh, identify that problem. And what's been interesting about this new paradigm of companies seeing water-related risk is they're beginning to push The governments, because they don't think the governments are up to the task of thinking about climate-related risk. I'll give you a good example. A food company that is in this UN initiative around water that I uh, am involved in called the Sea of Water Mandate has looked at where it sources its uh, food from around the world and what percentage of that food supply is rain-fed right now, and then they overlay that with their climate models and what's going to happen in those regions uh, in terms of the ability for those Farmers to continue with rain fed a- agriculture. And they've got big red hotspots that are showing up on those maps. And that's the information they're using to come into a conversation with this East African country or West African country saying, Houston, we have a problem. Or, you know, Accra, Ghana, we got a problem. And, and so, um, that's an important message and voice that hasn't been there from the private sector that's starting to get there. And I, and I think that will start to begin those policy discussions uh, to to plan for this uncertain future uh, related to climate Jason Morrison are any of
1: those hot spots in the United States where food and water will collide for a problem
2: well in the western us we irrigate much of the uh, of our of our crops so uh, I was speaking about uh, uh, about rain fed agriculture but uh, you know certainly this 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 um, this this example I used of less snowpack in the Sierras uh, and uh, the idea of trying to figure out how uh, to manage water resources across the quarters of the year so that there's assured supply during that late summer, those late summer months are questions that companies would be asking of Californian policymakers the same as they would. You know, if Intel is going to buy uh, and build a big multi-billion dollar facility here,
3: they're going to want to know the answer to that question as well, just as they would in any other part of yeah, the th- world.
1: Those days are over. I don't think ill-tends do anymore. Let me add
3: to that. <clears throat> this isn't new. Climate change itself is not actually new. Uh, We are in a particular phase of climate change. It's real. It's happening. But I know that questioner who who posed that inquiry uh, has been on the Colorado River, and he's gone to the sites of the Anasazi granaries. Well, there are not Anasazi people there now. They had to move when their climate changed. It wasn't something they could work around. So we're going to have some some changes. Back to the first part of the the questioner's uh, inquiry was, Well, what do we know about how rivers are going to do and so forth? Well, one thing that's really indisputable is rivers and those ecologies need water. There are some theories out there that you can continue to deny rivers water and in some cases even take more of the little that's left and replace it with things like more gravel so they can have spawning beds and those sorts of mechanical intrusions. Um, as a replacement for water. Rivers need water. Cold water moving downhill. Let's have our next audience
1: question, please. Uh,
3: Mr. Morrison, you, thank you for talking about all the um, the corporate participation and the hotspots. And it sounds like there is a lot of work going on for corporations sort of in isolation. Uh, several years ago, you were uh, involved as an advisor to the Water 2030 report. And one of the conclusions of that was that it actually costs money, for corporations to try to tackle these things individually compared to multi-stakeholder initiatives. Have you seen since then much of an uptake on uh, the need for multi-stakeholder collaboration to unlock that system value and to kind of bring it forth into the world in a, in a better and faster way?
2: Absolutely. That's a great question. So um, let me go back to the example of the 900 Indian businesses. Uh, you know the, Historically, this idea of, of, of companies doing well by water is that they became ultra efficient. And so, if you were an Indian business and, and you saw this scarcity uh, trajectories happening, uh, you you could say, well, I need to get my house in order and I need to get you know put in the pollution abatement or the water uh, efficiency measures that I can. But if I do that in isolation and and the water resources aren't managed in a sustainable way, it doesn't matter. I can't reduce my risk by becoming ultra efficient. And it's it's almost this moment in time when the company realizes, holy smokes, I can't, the only way that I can manage long-term risk around water is by working with others outside my factory fence line. You can see all the blood rush from their face when they realize that because that's a very uncomfortable place for many companies. They don't want to be in that that place, and especially because water is this sociopolitical hot, hot potato. But But there's this realization, I think, that companies are getting, particularly ones that are operating in parts of the world where water resource management is currently dysfunctional and where uh, inst- the public institutional capacity to manage the resource is not there. And there's this realization, hey, we need to come together and, and, and try to develop these uh, solutions in a multi-stakeholder platform. Now, in some parts of the, the world, there's also a lot of concern by civil society groups like the Pacific Institute that, hey, these companies already have a disproportionate amount of influence in terms of policy and decision-making. And so the the threat of policy capture is real. And this report that we've done that talks about what responsible engagement in water policy looks like has principles around how to do this well and how to do it incorrectly. And the idea of uh, being non-transparent and non-inclusive is is exactly the way that you get into these uh, potential problems and pitfalls Around policy capture, so the more that they're bringing with them other businesses and even better uh, communities and uh, and civil society organizations to come with a collective voice, the better chances they have of getting those public entities to listen to it and start thinking about the long term. We're tied on time. Let's get
1: a couple of uh, more audience questions and we'll wrap this up. Yes, sir. Uh,
0: thanks. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you to put a, a big picture on infrastructure spending because there was a question. There was a mention of a study in which. Uh, a trillion-dollar gap in infrastructure spending was identified. And if you if you look back, um, is it a case that there was a golden age of infrastructure spending in America or in California, and that there's been a holiday from which there's now a catch-up that needs to be implemented? Um, has it kept pace with the growth of the economy? Uh, and where are we there, and maybe venturing into the future?
3: Jonas Mitten, you've been doing this 40 plus years. Was there a golden age? Uh, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the federal government was very involved out of the Depression. Um, when we moved into the 1950s, uh, the state, 50s and 60s, uh, funded a project. Uh, the voters approved one for the State Water Project that in today's dollars would be in the tens of billions of dollars. We are not currently in that climate. There's a bond measure on the ballot uh, this November for $11 billion, The political leadership say that they are likely to pull that off the ballot because they do not think it has a chance to um, pass. To some extent, that is not a bad thing because a lot of it was funding the old paradigm of let's develop more water. And we're looking forward to working with all the parties uh, publicly to say, well, what are the investments in how we manage our water more efficiently Let's have our next audience question. Hi. We decided to connect our drops. Since you're short on time, we're going to ask together. (laughs) Um, So I have a practical question, and his is conceptual. If you could tell the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, which operates the Hetch Hetchy Water from the Hetch Hetchy Watershed and electricity and wastewater, if they could do anything in terms of environmental restoration or how they spend their money, what would your recommendations be? And my colleague will ask his question. So we'll
1: share that since we're uh, connecting here at Climate One. Okay, yeah. next one. So, so. I can answer either question. Uh, mine is, as she says, more conceptual. Given that uh, the con- – Tentiousness of water is, is due to the tension between its being both a commodity and a commons and the fact that politics has often trumped science and water. What do you think is going to be the tipping point that will allow for a more sustainable use? I mean, you can see most recently in the House of Representatives they've kind of gone back to, you know, an orientation of, of let's use the water as a commodity strictly in the, in the delta, which will you know, make it die. So we go back and forth and we don't make a lot of progress. What do you think the tipping point will be will allow for that kind of – true science-based policy or joint, uh, well, multi-stakeholder orientation. Tipping point in San Francisco. Let's
3: take tipping points first. Uh, The old scheme of let's develop more water, I think they've reached it. I got a report uh, on my phone this morning that a major Southern California water agency has come to the realization, uh, this is what their staff are saying, that spending another $20 billion is not going to get them more water. Now it may give them some reliability and so forth. I just heard that. Uh you know, it's a progression. So I think we're we're getting there that people are already moving in that direction. And the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, how what, what could they what could they do? To, to uh, recycle more. Come on, San Francisco, you gotta do that. Uh, stormwater capture, and you really gotta be much more open to restoring the Hetch Hetchy Valley, um, one of the major environmental resources. Let's not just say no, no, no. Let's talk and really examine what are the, the electrical and water supply options that have been discussed by groups such as Restore Hetch Hetchy. Last word. Uh, Jason, then Laurent. I,
2: I, my, uh, my view of the tipping point, and i admittedly biased because the work area that I focus on, is the, is the new voice that's coming from the private sector. There's a annual global risk report that the World Economic Forum does for the first year ever, uh water uh, uh made the top 5 both in terms of uh probability of the event and uh impact and um that is uh that's very significant because the risks they're looking at are everything from you know chronic debt uh, over imbalances in the public sector it's everything across the board top 5 there's only two that actually uh public uh, chronic public debt is is the second one but that is the it, it's it's a it's a new era and a new voice. And I think the idea of, um, of punting on water policy and, and, and deferring the investments, its a t- this chronically underinvested uh, uh, area, is, is not going to work. With uh, And non-science-based decision-making is not going to work, I think, going forward. And, and that's going to change the dynamic of the discussion.
0: Laurent Auguste? Yes. Yeah, I've been in the water sector for the past 20 years, and I really think that the tipping point is coming. And I I see actually that there's a stick. The stick is the pressure on the resource, uh, the financial uh, pressure. And there's a carrot as well, the one I was mentioning, for instance, earlier in terms of uh, the competitiveness of cities. So you've got really the two elements. Um, Something I'd like to add as well, again, in terms of uh, investment, because people talk often about the need for more investment. Yes, this is true. But there's also a lot of potential for more efficiency. Think about what I was mentioning about what New York is doing. They will save 10 to 20% in terms of their operating costs. In the U.S., there's about $90 billion that are spent a year by the municipal water and wastewater services. If you save 10% across the board, that's $9 billion a year. You can do a lot with that money. So you've got to think about new money being invested, but you've got also to look at the resource you've got in terms of driving more efficiency uh, in the way you manage or you develop. Your water services tipping points are coming. Our ending point is here. Uh,
1: I'd like to thank the fantastic Climate One crew. I'd like to thank you. Uh, Climate One events are a lot about the interaction we've just had, as well as meeting people in the audience. So I'll get, hope you will uh, introduce yourself to someone new to discuss about uh, what we've learned here today. Our thanks to Laurent Angus, CEO of Water. America's Riviolia, uh Jonas Minton, Water Policy Advisor, the Planning and Conservation League, and Jason Morrison, Program Director at the Pacific Institute. Uh full podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available for free in the ITunes store. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.